Our Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We are here along with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law, and we have been taking advantage of uh, this time to, to talk a little bit about the faith of the founding generation. And, uh, Colonel, my understanding is we're going to be talking about one of my favorite figures of that founding generation. Uh, that would be George Washington. Absolutely. Was there, was there anything you wanted to touch base on before, though? I know you, you mentioned you've had kind of a, a busy time since the last time we spoke. Um, you just had a, a brief filed, where was it, in the 11th uh, Circuit? Uh, it was in the 11th Circuit, which centers out of Atlanta, but that includes Florida and Alabama and several others of the southern states. And it involves an Alabama case. And you'd like to hear about it? Oh, absolutely. Okay, well... This is a case, the title of the case is Darcy Corbett versus Hal Taylor. And Alabama has a policy that when you get a driver's license, well, it'll be your picture on the license. It'll identify you by name and your height, your weight, and your color of eyes, color of hair. And then it asks your sex and lists that as being male or female. Well, we have several plaintiffs here in this case who had decided to identify as women rather than as men, even though they were born as men. And they've insisted that their driver's license reflects that they are women, so they should read F instead of M. And a liberal federal judge here, Judge Myron Thompson, issued an order on their behalf approving their request and essentially saying that Alabama's policy of identifying you as male and female, is unconstitutional and has to be changed to accommodate those who want to identify as something else. And Alabama law already does provide for this to some extent. It provides that if you have had surgery for gender reassignment, as they use the term, and you bring to the driver's license examination Bureau there, a statement from your doctor on his letterhead saying you've gone through that surgery, then they will issue you a driver's license based on the sex you have supposedly changed to. Now, we personally would strongly question that, and the reason we would question it is that there is no way that you can change your DNA. There's no way you can change from being a man to being a woman or vice versa, that you retain that throughout your entire life. And in fact, we pointed out here that there is a medical doctor, a Dr. George Bureau, a surgeon who had performed over 700 sexual reassignment surgeries. And he stated, I don't change men into women. I transform male genitals into genitals that have a female aspect. All the rest is in the patient's mind. And quoted further from Janice Raymond is saying that it is physiologically impossible to change a person's sex since the sex of each individual is encoded in the genes, XS, XX of female, XY of male. Surgery can only create the appearance of the other sex. 
But anyway, Alabama was willing to accommodate those who wished to be transgender to allow them to have a choice on the driver's license. It can reflect the what appears on your birth certificate, or it can reflect that there has been surgery. But they want to go further. And the plaintiffs in this case insisted, no, we shouldn't have to go through surgery to identify as the opposite sex. It should be whatever we want it to be. Anyway, so Judge Thompson, in his order, said that this is a sexual classification since it lists people on their licenses as M or F, and therefore it has to meet what we call intermediate scrutiny or a pretty strong burden of proof to say that the state can't allow this. And through what I consider to be some rather tortured reasoning, he said that the state can allow this, and therefore it has to allow it, because they should be allowed to be the sex that they want to be. Anyway, we filed an amicus brief in support of the state of Alabama, in this case, and filed that just a couple of hours ago today. And in that, we make the argument that, well, Judge Thompson says that the state can't tell them what they are or prohibit them from being what they want to be. We say that it isn't the state that is telling them what they are. It is God and nature that is telling them what sex they are. And then we go a step further than this, and we say that, first of all, identification is not discrimination. And yes, the Equal Protection Clause prohibits the state from discriminating, but just identifying as male and female is not discriminating. Now, the laws went further and said that so there are certain types of cars only men can drive and certain roads that only women can drive on, or there are different speed limits for men and women, then we would have sex discrimination. But nothing like that takes place here. And we went on to say that if we're going to say that you can be whatever sex you want to identify yourself as, regardless of either surgery or of your birth certificate, then we've got a special problem. And for one thing, there are those now that are claiming that there aren't just two sexes. There are 10 sexes. One wrote an article a few years ago and said that there are 63 different genders. And then he revised his article later to say, no, it's not 63, it is 81. And there can be more, whatever you want to create. But when we step into that world, we're stepping into an existential world, the basic existential premise of Sartre and others, that existence precedes essence, and that we can therefore define who we are, who we want to be. Well, then, if I can identify myself by my sex for whatever I want to be, couldn't I do the same with race? Now, Alabama driver's licenses don't indicate race, but if they did, couldn't I identify as black or as an Asiatic and make my driver's license reflect that? Or supposing I don't want to be identified in my driver's license as somebody who is 6'1 with white hair and blue eyes, maybe I want to be identified instead as somebody who is 5'4 with dark hair and with brown eyes. So why can't I have my driver's license reflect that? Point of the matter is, 
we are moving into a fantasy land when we do this, and society can't run that way. Well, we'll see what the 11th Circuit decides on this, and I think there is a good chance the 11th Circuit will reverse Judge Thompson's decision, and I certainly hope as well that the amicus or friend of the court brief that we've filed here will be of some help to the court in reaching that decision. Well, somebody that I think would be quite shocked by the decision of Judge Thompson would be the man who chaired the Constitutional Convention, the man who was the Bill of Rights when the Constitution was adopted. And he would probably look at that and say, you think that's what the Constitution that I helped design? You think that's what that Constitution means? No way. At least I'm very much inclined to think that's what George Washington would think. But he'd probably be so blown away like this that nothing even remotely like this would have crossed his mind. But when we think about George Washington, there's a Bible verse that comes to mind, Psalm 37, 23. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. And I think that verse speaks very well for the man that we often call the father of our country. A man who was, we say, first in war, first in peace, first in the hearts of his countrymen. Those words come from Major General Lighthorse Harry Lee, a not only a general, but a member of the Continental Congress, Governor of Virginia, and the Father of somebody else by the name of Lee, let's see, who would that have been? Robert E., Robert E. Lee. But anyway, there was a poll that I saw some time ago that showed that people thought of George Washington maybe as the ninth favorite president because he's largely forgotten today. First in war, first in peace, ninth in the heart of his countrymen. Well, let's see if that's appropriate after our break. Sounds good. We'll continue our conversation with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law here on Constitution Classroom. We'll be right back. Hairballs have hairballs. Our cat mama, she's 10 years old. She has dandruff and an oily coat. I have two cats, Zippy and Daisy. Daisy sheds like crazy. If you love your pets as much as I do, you'll want to do what's best for them to live long, healthy, happy lives. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. I just tried this wonderful, catalicious Dynavite for cats, and my cat has been on it for two weeks. She is not scratching anymore. She's not chewing anymore. It is just the best. I was thrilled when I heard Dynavite for cats was coming out because I had seen the changes in my dog. To introduce my cat to Dynavite, I took the advice from Dynavite and put their food on top of just a scoop in the bowl just to get them used to it because I know if I even switch one little thing, they put their nose up to it. There was not one problem. Dynavite for life. You won't believe how happy your cat will be. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. 
awesome and amazing day. Hey there, friends. It's John and Chelsea Jubilee. And today we have a message for you women out there. Are you premenopausal, postmenopausal, or maybe you're in the middle of menopause right now? Ouch. Listen, we have thousands of clients that have reported reversing all of their symptoms of menopause. Or maybe you have thyroid imbalances. Same thing for those women. Listen, this is your time. Absolutely. You can reverse all of those symptoms and you can be your real joyful, exuberant, and lean self again. Ladies, I don't care if six doctors told you you can't lose that fat after menopause or in menopause. You can. We have done it hundreds and hundreds of times, even in a medical setting, documented. So make your action call today. Log on to EnergizeHealth.com, EnergizeHealth.com, or call 888-444-8895. That's 888-444-8895. The following are real-life stories from Trinity Debt Management. My story begins with debt, a lot of debt. I used my credit cards as a source of income. It was not a good situation. I couldn't pay my bills. The interest on the cards was really high. If you're in debt and you need help, call Trinity at 1-800-990-6976. I initially was scared to call, and immediately I felt relieved. They contacted all of our creditors, and they put us on a plan for success. Trinity will consolidate your accounts into one. One easy-to-manage monthly payment, reduce your interest, and possibly improve your credit score. You'll save thousands. I've been able to pay off close to $15,000. We're doing a lot better. Please pick up the phone and see how affordable and easy it is to pay off your debt. It's a godsend. We're debt-free for keeps. Call Trinity at 1-800-990-6976. That's 1-800-990-6976. We welcome you back to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We are with Colonel John Eitzmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. We are currently talking about uh, Christianity and the constitutional founders, and you're talking about uh, George Washington today. Colonel, you mentioned in the last segment that he's a he's the man who has largely been forgotten in this generation. Seems like almost a a foreign figure to us, but let's uh, let's reacquaint our listeners with with who he was and the great impact he had. Absolutely. And when we look to George Washington, well, for a lot of us, we have a picture in our mind of George Washington. And suppose you're like me, when you were growing up, you went to school there on the wall of your classroom, there was a picture of Washington and a picture of Lincoln. And you looked at that picture of Washington, he seemed like he was probably a very respectable, very honorable man, but also a very stern man. You never see a picture of Washington with a big toothy smile, do you? And there's a reason for that. First of all, you couldn't really hold a pose in a smile like that long enough for somebody to take, you know, to to paint you. And in fact, even a century later, when we started getting early photography, you looked at families and family photographs, they looked stern. Because you'd normally have to hold a pose for some 18 seconds for the camera in those days. And obviously not even cameras in Washington's day. But there's another reason, and that's that Washington had false teeth. Some call them wooden teeth. Actually, they were porcelain, but they are false teeth. And that's one of the reasons why he didn't commonly keep his mouth open a great deal. And then we have a picture that's presented today that 
George Washington and most of these other founding fathers were, in fact, deists and skeptics. They weren't really Christians. By a deist, we talked about that term before, we mean somebody who believed that there was a God who created everything and created laws for the universe to operate by, but then he somehow withdrew from the universe. He is not actively involved in human affairs anymore, an absentee God, you might say. Well, I'll simply say this, and maybe this will wake up some of our listeners, that I'm offering $1,000 to anybody who can produce any authentic statement of George Washington in which he either claims to be a deist or in which he denies any fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith. I'm going to cite something from a book that over the years has been the best-selling book about Washington. It was titled Life of of George Washington, published by a pastor in 1800, the Reverend Mason Locke Weems. Now it was Weems who tells the story about George Washington and the cherry tree. And you know the story where Father comes and sees that he's cut down this cherry tree and asks him if he did it. And he says, I cannot tell a lie, Father. I told, I did chop down the cherry tree. And anyway, it's general view that this didn't really happen. But it's recorded by Mason Weems. And unfortunately, when Weems was writing his book, he wasn't writing it for the purpose of trying to, to present a scholarly documented story of Washington. He was writing a popular story complete with moral lessons. If he had been asked to produce documentation for stories like the cherry tree story, or the one that I'm going to tell you in just a moment here, he very likely could have produced very good documentation. But it wasn't needed. He didn't think at the time. He had no idea anybody would question what he was saying. But here's what he says about Washington at Valley Forge. In the winter of 77, while Washington, with the army, lay encamped at Valley Forge, a certain good old friend of the respectable family and name of Potts, if I mistake not, had occasion to pass through the woods near headquarters. Treading his way along the venerable grove, suddenly he heard the sound of a human voice, which, as he advanced, increased on his ear, and at length became like the voice of one speaking much in earnest. As he approached the spot with a cautious step, whom should he behold in a dark, natural bower of ancient oaks but the commander-in-chief of the American armies on his knees in prayer? Motionless with surprise, friend Potts continued him the place until the general, having ended his devotions, arose and with a countenance of angel serenity returned to headquarters. Friend Potts then went home, and on entering his parlor, called aloud to his wife, Sarah, my dear, Sarah, all's well, all's well. George Washington will yet prevail. What's the matter, Isaac, replied she. Thee seems moved. Well, if I seem moved, tis no more than what I am. I have this day seen what I never expected. He knows that I've always thought the sword and the gospel utterly inconsistent, and that no man could be a soldier and a Christian at the same time. But George Washington has this day convinced me of my mistake. He then related what he had seen, 
and concluded with his prophetical remark, If George Washington be not a man of God, I am greatly deceived, and still more shall I be deceived if God do not, through him, work out a great salvation for America. And, of course, that certainly became the case. Washington was born in 1732 on February 2nd. That's why we celebrate that as Washington's birthday. Born to Augustine and Mary Washington. Augustine, his father, taught George to be very careful about what he said. One time when he'd said some harsh remarks to his sister, Washington, his father, gave him a stick and told him, break the stick. And he did break it. And then he said, now I'll try to put it together. And, of course, he couldn't. And then his father said, it's the same way with harsh words. Once they're said, you can't undo them. You can't put them back together. And also he stressed to him that even though George was big for his age, strong for his age, very skillful in athletics and a very good worker, he said, your character is far more important than your physical attributes. Well, August Washington died when George was only 11. And so George was left at home with his mother and his brothers, and together they raised him. His father left him one work in particular, Reverend Comber's short discourse on the common prayer, which, from writing it, it is very clear that George Washington read that over and over again, partly out of devotion to God, partly out of devotion to his family. Mary Washington taught him piety. She taught him humility. When she learned of his election as president, her prayer to God was, Lord, keep him humble. She knew that's probably as important as anything because probably pride can cause a person problems more than anything else in their lives. And as he went off to the presidency, his mother was very old. He's going off to Washington to serve as president or Philadelphia at that time. And anyway, she's 82 years old at this time. And anyway, she says to him as he says goodbye, and you will see me no more. My great age and the disease which is fast approaching my vitals warn me that I shall not be long in this world. I trust in God that I may be somewhat prepared for the better. But go, George, fulfill the high destinies which heaven appears to have intended for you. Go, my son, and may that heaven's and a mother's blessing be with you always. And so George Washington went on to fulfill this mission that God had ordained for him. But before he did so, there are many other courses that his life took. He was a farmer, a surveyor, a soldier, citizen statesman, and more, as we'll see in a moment. Welcome back to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. 
We are with Colonel John Eitzmo from the Foundation for Moral Law, and we are talking about George Washington. Colonel, you shared uh, a remarkable story about his upbringing that I think gives a lot of uh, depth of understanding how he became such an influential and and powerful figure. Um, Where do we go next? Well, let's, you know, we were, just as he was departing to assume the presidency, but let's go back a bit now and see what happened in the meantime. He was a farmer and a very prosperous farmer. He came to own very extensive lands. He was a surveyor. That was a very honorable occupation at the time. And he was a citizen statesman, a citizen soldier. And his prosperity there had something to do with his philosophy of what government ought to be. It was referred to sometimes at the time as the Virginia gentleman philosophy of government. They were concerned at that time, as we have been at all times, or should be at all times, about what happens when people take public office? They become greedy, they become power hungry, they want more and more power, and they abuse that power. But Washington's view, and the view of many in Virginia at that time, was that the solution to that problem was to have government in the hands of country gentlemen, the landed estates and so on. And the reason for this is that these people would be hard to buy, hard to bribe, hard to corrupt, because they had a good life back home, a pleasant life, a prosperous life, and They'd be taking public office like this at a great sacrifice to themselves. And if somebody's trying to bribe them or pressure them to do something wrong, well, the Virginia general is going to say, I don't need this. I can go back to my farm and be a lot richer and a lot happier. I don't need this job. Well, of course, corruption and greed and abuse of power go a lot further than that. That's not going to solve all the problems, but it's likely there's some truth in what he was saying. Now, we have to tell you also that Washington was also a slaveholder, as we saw last week was James Madison, and a number of the Virginia and Southern constitutional founding fathers. But Washington was personally opposed to slavery, and he didn't think the economy was such at the time that they could simply do a total emancipation, but he provided in his will that his slaves would be emancipated over a period of time. And it couldn't really apply immediately to all of them because some of them were actually owned by his wife. But at any rate, it was his goal that they do emancipate them from slavery. He became involved as a citizen soldier and rose in rank. And probably his most famous encounter before the American War for Independence was the French and Indian War of the 1760s. There he served under the English General Braddock. There, of course, we were serving with the English together, and there were some Indian tribes supporting the English. There were some Indian tribes supporting the French. But they were, in effect, ambushed by French and Indians, and General Braddock was killed in this battle, But Washington saw something out of this, and he saw that the tactics that they were using, tactics that might work well in Europe, would not work out here in the frontier, and they were going to have to rethink their military strategies. 
You know, it's sometimes said uh, as military men that every general fights the last war. What we mean by that is that the tactics that we learn in the last war are what we apply in this war. And those tactics from the last war may not work anymore because of different terrain or better technology and things like that. For example, in the war between the states, many of the generals were using tactics that they would have learned in the Napoleonic Wars. That, and, you know, like a cavalry charge against the enemy. That might work well when you're dealing, you're up against musketmen who can shoot accurately maybe 100 yards. But if you're up against riflemen who can shoot accurately half a mile, then cavalry charges don't make that much sense. Well, the military tactic that had been used in Europe in the 1700s and sometime before that basically consisted of being out in an open field, lined up in rows, across from the enemy, and you and the enemy will be shooting at each other like that. And that may be the gentlemanly way of warfare, but it's not going to work out here in the wilderness where you've got people hiding behind rocks and trees. And so he saw a need for a change in military tactics, and in all this time, God was preparing him, preparing him for the war of independence. As the war comes, and he is asked to become general of the army, and agrees reluctantly to do so, well, not only was he a capable general who probably one of his greatest skills was just his ability to inspire, perhaps known less for his brilliance of military tactics, and with the way he would inspire confidence in his men and get them to make sacrifices in order that the cause could be advanced. But give you a couple of orders that he gave that reflect his character. July 4th, 1777, the general most earnestly requires and expects a due observance of the articles of war established for the government of the army which forbid cursing, swearing, and drunkenness, and in like manner he expects of all officers and soldiers not engaged in actual duty a punctual attendance on divine service, that is church, to implore the blessing of heaven upon the means used for our safety and defense. Another order that he issues, it was always in the third person, the general orders this day to be religiously observed by the forces under his command, exactly in manner directed by the Continental Congress. It is therefore strictly enjoined on all officers and soldiers to attend divine service, and is expected that all those who go to worship do take their arms, ammunition, and accoutrements, and be prepared for immediate action if called upon. And on a number of occasions also, he either ordered or encouraged fasting and prayer and thanksgiving and attendance at religious services. Anyway, so very clearly, he is a man of God. Now, at the end of the war, he resigned his commission, and on December 23rd, 1783, he wrote a letter to the 13 governors, and in that letter, he calls upon them to call upon the interposition of heaven, and he says, I consider it an indispensable duty to close this last solemn act of my public life by commending the interests of our dearest country 
to the protection of Almighty God and those who have the superintendence of them to his holy keeping. He also referred in that letter to the divine author of our blessed religion. The historian Henry Cabot Lodge said of this letter, either Washington believed in the divinity of Christ, or when he wrote those words, he deliberately stated something he did not believe. And that doesn't seem to be the kind of thing that Washington would do. But here at this time, he thinks he's going to go back to a life of farming. But God has other plans for him. And among those other plans are that we are going to need a new constitution. The Articles of Confederation just were not strong enough to hold the nation together. And so Washington is called to the convention and there is unanimously elected to be president of the convention. His opening remark as he begins the convention are, let us raise a standard to which the wise and the honorable may repair. The event is in the hand of God. Clearly, he believed that God had a role in the founding of America, and God had a role in the drafting of our Constitution. Well, as president, Washington, and it is really interesting about Washington here, when he takes office as president, you know, in 1783, he could have become king of America in all probability, but like Cincinnatus of the Romans and like Gideon of the Hebrews, he chose not to assume office. Rather, he chose to give up power and go back home. It's rare that people are willing to give up power once they have it. It becomes addictive. But Gideon in the Bible and Cincinnatus among the Romans and Washington are examples of people who willingly laid down the reins of power and went back to the life of farming. But he becomes the first president. Now, several things that Washington clearly believed in as president, one of them was limited government. He did not want a strong central government. He was somewhere between the Federalists, like Hamilton, who wanted the central government to be strong, and Jefferson, who wanted it very weak. He was somewhere in between. But more on this as we go to our closing session. Balance of Nature's fruits and vegetables in a capsule, changing the world one life at a time. You guys, your customer service and everything, you guys are great. And the commercials talk about it, but I don't know if it really gives it true justice. People need to know, this is maybe the most amazing product I've ever tried. It's so pure, it tastes so good, I'm just blown away by it. Balance of Nature is now offering 35% off on any new preferred order. Go to balanceofnature.com today and use discount code... USA. At the American Veterinary Medical Association annual convention in Washington, D.C., I spoke with Dr. John Howe, AVMA president, about One Health. One Health is really a collaboration between physicians and veterinarians or public health officials. For example, in Minnesota, our state public health veterinarian deals with zoonotic diseases, rabies, for example. Animals are sentinels for humans, and humans are sentinels for some infections in animals. There's more valuable information at AVMA. 
Awesome and amazing day, friends. It's John and Chelsea Jubilee with Energized Health. You've been hearing our messages for a while. You've heard Wayne Allen Root and his extraordinary testimony of what's been going on. And women, if you have a husband that is struggling or needs a loving nudge, I encourage you to nudge him off the couch and go check out our masterclass on our website, including the amazing testimonials. And these testimonials are just real people. They're not famous or high-level production. This is real people, people talking on their iPhone, people sitting across from their spouse. They share their real story for the past 23 years, tens of thousands of people reversing arthritis, diabetes, high blood pressure, neck pain, back pain, migraine headaches, brain fog, lots of challenging things. Be a beautiful, beloved skeptic. And come check us out at EnergizedHealth.com. That's EnergizedHealth.com. As a follower of Christ, you are created and called for greatness. Now more than ever before, in his powerful sequel to the bestseller, Kingdom Man, Tony Evans, Kingdom Men Rising, calls men to break free of apathetic faith, to take a stand, do more than just exist. You have been called to rise up and influence those around you. Discover how when you get Kingdom Men Rising and learn the art of intentional impact. New from Tony Evans, sponsored by The Urban Alternative. With a Democratic sweep officially in place, we are now at the mercy of tax and spend economics. Get ready for runaway national debt pushing the further devaluation of the dollar. So if you haven't invested in gold, now is the time to protect your savings. Birch Gold Group is the premier precious metals IRA company in America. With an A-plus BBB rating and thousands of satisfied customers, Birch Gold can help you move an eligible IRA or 401k into an IRA backed by gold. Go to birchgold.com radio for your free information kit. That's birchgold.com radio. And we welcome you back. This is our final segment in today's show of Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We are with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law and talking about George Washington and his unique outlook and worldview and contributions to the founding of this nation. Where shall we continue from? Let's look at Washington's presidency and then the events afterward and what kind of person he was at the very end. He believed, as we said, in limited government. He also believed in America being first. He warned against entangling alliances with other nations. He wanted to be friends with other nations, but didn't want us to be bound up in the wars and affairs of what was going on, particularly what was going on in Europe. And the idea that we hear today People complain about this idea of American exceptionalism. Washington would have believed that very strongly, that yes, God did have a special plan for America, and America is a very special nation. He also favored religious liberty, but in fact, earlier, as a general, he had spoken about the children of Abraham, the Jews, and that they should have full liberty in America, and visited various Jewish synagogues and so on. But in his farewell address, he recognizes not only that religious liberty is a good thing, but he also recognizes that, nevertheless, religion plays a role in producing the kind of moral character that makes responsible self-government possible. In his farewell address, one of the real masterpieces of all speeches and addresses in the history of American government. This one would rate right up there near the top, George Washington's farewell address. He said, 
of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. It goes on to say about the role that the oaths play in our courts of justice. And he said, and let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. Whatever may be conceded to the influence of refined education on minds of peculiar structure, religion and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle. Afterward, 20 clergymen wrote Washington a letter thanking him for that address. He wrote back to them and simply said, religion and morality are the very pillars of civil government. He didn't get really outspoken on doctrinal issues. Part of the reason for this was he thought that as a general and as a president, that he shouldn't inject himself into doctrinal issues that might divide churches. But he certainly acknowledged the role of religion as a whole and of Christianity as a whole. And in an address that he delivered to the Delaware chiefs, he said to them in 1779, you would do well to wish to learn our ways of life and above all, the religion of Jesus Christ. This will make you a greater and happier people than you are. So what do we say about Washington and his religious beliefs? It's pointed out by some that during the war, he didn't take communion, and there's a reason for this. First of all, he had been a vestryman in the Episcopal Church for Truro Parish. Now, as a vestryman, he took a sworn oath in which he swore that he accepted the doctrine of the church, and so he could not have been a deist and signed that oath, but as far as communion, as a vestryman of the church, if he were to take communion in an Episcopal or Anglican or Church of England church at the time, that would create a problem. You see, here he is. Who is the head of the Episcopal church, the Church of England? King George III. Washington is leading a war for independence against King George III, who was head of that church. So no wonder Washington feels that he cannot take communion during the war in an Episcopal church. He took communion in other churches during the war. He took communion in Episcopal churches before and after the war. But this simply shows how conscientious he actually was. But to give you a closing idea of his religious beliefs, I think it is well to go to some of the things that were said about him Jared Sparks. Jared Sparks was probably the leading Washington historian in the early 1800s. And here's what he wrote. George Washington had a pew in Pohick Church. At that time, people would buy a pew for their family to sit in. And one in Christ Church in Alexandria. He was very instrumental in establishing Pohick Church, and I believe subscribed that it has contributed largely. His pew was near the pulpit. He attended the church in Alexandria when weather and roads permitted a ride of 10 miles. In New York and Philadelphia, he never omitted attendance at church in the morning, unless detained by indisposition. No one in church attended to the service with more reverential respect. My grandmother, who was eminently pious, never deviated from her early habits. She always knelt. 
the general, as was the custom, stood during the devotional parts of the service on communion Sundays. He left the church with me after the blessing and returned home, and we sent the carriage back for a grandmother. And then he says, he was a silent and thoughtful man. I'm sorry, I'm looking for a part here. It was his custom to retire to his library at 9 or 10 o'clock, where he remained an hour before he went to his chamber. He always arose before the sun, remained in his library until called for breakfast. I never witnessed his private devotions. I should have thought it the greatest heresy to doubt his firm belief in Christianity. His life, his writings, prove that he was a Christian. He was not one of those who act or pray that they may be seen of men. He communed with his God in secret. After 40 years of devoted and uninterrupted happiness, talking about his wife now, she resigned him without a murmur into the arms of his Savior and his God with the assured hope of eternal felicity. Is it necessary that anyone should certify General Washington avowed himself to me to be a believer in Christianity, as well may we question his patriotism, his disinterested devotion to his country. His mottos were, deeds, not words, and for God and my country. And again from Sparks, if a man wrote, spoke, and acted as a Christian through a long life, who gave numerous proofs of his believing himself to be such, and who was never known to say, write, or do a thing contrary to his professions. If such a man is not to be ranked among the believers of Christianity, it would be impossible to establish that point by any train of reason. After a long and minute examination of the writings of Washington, in public and private, in print and in manuscript, I'm still quoting from his Jared Sparks, I can affirm that I had never seen a single hint or expression from which it could be inferred they had any doubt of the Christian revelation or that he thought with indifference or unconcern of that subject. On the contrary, whenever he approaches it, and indeed whenever he alludes in any manner to religion, it is done with seriousness and reverence. Well, as we close and think about George Washington, I think if we were to ask who was the greatest president America ever had, there are some that would stand out, but I think Washington really has to stand above the others because of the circumstances of the time. He is the one who leads the nation in a war for independence, and without Washington at the helm as general of the army during that war, I have very serious doubts that we could have brought that war to a successful conclusion. So it is he who brought about the nation's independence. It is likewise he who chaired the Constitutional Convention, and there as chairing the convention, he didn't often speak on issues, but Madison observed that a simple look of approval or disapproval on Washington's face was often enough, enough to pass or defeat a measure. And once the Constitution is adopted, he becomes our first president. And there is first president, of course, guides this nation through those first eight years and 
builds this nation into the nation that it has become today. Putting all that together, I think I have no hesitation in saying that the greatest of all of our presidents was and remains today George Washington. And by the way, I would urge people, if you have never done so, go to Mount Vernon, Washington's home. It is interesting that Mount Vernon is maintained by the Mount Vernon Ladies Association. It is not maintained by government funds, but there you will walk where Washington walked. You will see the things he did, and you will get to know him as a man.